0: Hey Amarillo, I'm Jason Boyette, and you're listening to Hey Amarillo, the interview podcast featuring some of the most interesting people and stories of Amarillo, Texas. This episode of Hey Amarillo is supported by U.S. cleaners with three locations in Amarillo and Canyon. This local business has been family owned for 30 years. Just last year, I interviewed Taylor Van Valkenburg about the family business on this podcast. And over the years, they've developed a loyal and satisfied customer base. U.S. Cleaners offers pickup and delivery services. They work hard to stay up to date with the latest technology. And they clean everything from clothing to uniforms, bedding, and tablecloths. And they do residential or commercial work. So to learn more, visit uscleanersamarello.com. That's uscleanersamarello.com. And as part of this podcast partnership with Brick and Elm Magazine, I want to give a podcast shout-out to Ascension Academy, online at ascensionacademy.org to Street Volkswagen online at streetvw.com to Good Dog Pet Ranch online at gooddogpetranch.com and to Gott Wittenberg Emerson Commercial Real Estate which you can find at gwamarello.com If you haven't yet read the free e-edition of Brick and Elm at brickandelm.com Our September October issue is out now there's so much good stuff in that one Today's guest is Melanie Korpstein. Melanie grew up in Amarillo before she moved to Arizona, and that's where she spent three decades as the founder and president of a company called Adorable Originals, and it was hugely successful. She designed children's clothing and sold wholesale to stores across the country. Melanie followed that up with a series of dolls called Adorable Girls, and the way she fell into that business itself is quite a story, and it has a lot to do with her upbringing in Amarillo. Well, Melanie returned home a few years ago, and her retirement, and I put that word in quotes, has been equally interesting, and it continues to evolve. So here's Melanie Corpstein. Melanie Korpstein, welcome to the Hey Amarillo podcast. Thanks for being here. Thank you for inviting me. Absolutely. Uh, I'm honored to talk to you, and I want to start with you, like I start with all my guests, and that's to ask you why you're here in Amarillo. So what brought you to this
1: area? I had been living in Phoenix for many years, and we sold both of our properties and right before COVID, Mm -hmm. maybe a week before COVID even. And we went out to a property that we had in San Diego and just kind of huddled there while COVID was going on. And then we decided I just felt such a strong pull to come to Amarillo and just be with family. You had family here? Yes, we have a large family here. And uh, I grew up here and I just needed to come back and be with everyone because it was a tough time. Okay. And so we came back and when we came back to Amarillo, we were staying in some Airbnbs, one maybe worse than another. <laughs> <laughs> and so I had offered to help my sister and brother-in-law find a house because they both worked. So I worked with the realtor trying to look at houses, and during that process we found this cute little house and over in Olson, and we bought it. Okay. And we thought, well, maybe we'll make an Airbnb out of it but the airbnb that we were staying in i asked the gentleman how how long what's your average stay and he said 1.2 days and so I thought again. I said, "That's a lot of cleaning and a lot of changing sheets. Yeah. I don't think that looks like retirement to me." So we decided not to make an Airbnb and we moved in and okay. moved back to Amarillo. And so
0: you were retired already at the time yes, to have the flexibility just, to come here
1: just right before COVID. Okay, really, we had, we closed everything. You know, just sold properties, and then yeah, we were you know looking to push the easy button. Okay, and came out here. And it was the best thing that we have ever done, and we know now that we were supposed to be here. All right.
0: So you had a lot of family in Amarillo. Had you spent much time in Amarillo before
1: that? I mean, yes, did you grow up here? I grew up here here. Uh-huh. You I were up born here. here? Okay. Uh-huh. I grew up here. Yes, I'm from a large family, and my mom was a single mom for most of our childhood, and she taught me what it was like to really work hard. Mm-hmm. Most of the time, she had two jobs. So she really taught me work ethic and pushing and pushing beyond what you feel like you can do. Yeah, I watched her do that and then it was impressive. So later she married again and we were teenagers. And I don't know what this man was thinking, but he married this woman with these four teenage kids. He had two of his own, and soon they had a baby. All right. So we That's had a full six Brady bunch ten- sort of scenario. Yeah, not exactly the Brady Bunch though. <laughs> it was uh, it was it was pretty crazy. We had uh, six teenagers okay. and one baby. Wow. <laughs> so it was it was pretty wild, and you know it just seemed like there was never any money to buy anything. We didn't get new school clothes each year for school. Mm-hmm. I found that I had to just try to figure out anything that I could do to to work and make money. I babysat for fifty cents an hour. I uh, cleaned houses. I mowed lawns. As a teenager, then? Yeah. As things? a teenager, yes. I was. I think I was thirteen at the time. Wow. And this woman was babysitting my little brother, the baby, and she saw me trying to make money, little bits here and there that just wasn't working, and she said you know, I know where you can make $10 a day. And I said, where, where could I make $10? And she said, you could go and stay with my family in Tulia, Texas, and work in the cotton fields. And I said, oh my gosh, I would love to do that $10 a day. If I stayed two weeks, that would be a hundred dollars and I could buy my school clothes for that. So my mom let me go, really? Yes. Wow. So she let me go, and I went down there and I stayed with this family. They didn't speak much English, and they worked in the cotton fields. So there was a man that he wore khaki pants and a khaki shirt and a hat, and he picked us up every morning at before sunrise, and he, he dropped took us outside the town mm-hmm. and to a cotton field, leave us there, and then he didn't come back till sundown. So it was a long day, and the lady that owned the home where I was staying, she made these fresh tortillas every morning. And I didn't even know if I liked pimento cheese, but she put this pimento cheese in there, and I've never tasted anything so good <laughs> in the middle of the day in the heat. And so, so I, I you know, I was wanting to do that. And I know some people might be familiar with El Camino Mexican Food mm-hmm. Restaurant. We used to drive there to just to have that good Mexican food later. Mm-hmm. But I went there. I heard that they needed a bus person. So after I worked in the fields all day, they let me bus tables till 10 o'clock wow. that night. Right now, I, there's no way I could do that. Yeah. I work in the field all day. Was that, I mean, that's really hard work, even mm-hmm. for a teenager with a lot of energy. Yes.
0: Was it worth it for the, the money that you earned? Like, did mm-hmm. As you were doing that,
1: did you think, this was a good choice. I'd... Oh, gosh, no, it was so hard. It was hot. It was really, really hot. And, you know, I'll say if you needed to go to the restroom, there was nowhere to go to mm-hmm. the restroom. So the women would just gather around you. And I was a young teenage girl, so it was very uncomfortable for me. But uh, I would say yes, that yes, it was. I had no other choices, really, to make money. Mm-hmm. And it also taught me a lot. It taught me endurance and it taught me that that I have I can do more than what I think I can do but it really was during a lawn mowing experience that I learned a big life lesson i was took our lawn mower and I'd go house to house and we were living in the Bivens area okay. at the time and so you know Julian Boulevard has some larger homes right. there so i decided one day that i'm going to push that lawn mower over to Julian Boulevard to one of the big homes there, and see if they need their lawn mowed. I knocked on his door, and he came to the door, and I said, could I mow your lawn? And he said, how much? And I said, oh, I was so worried that maybe if I told him $5, that it would be too much money. So I told him, $2, and he said, $2? Okay. And so, I started mowing his lawn. It was probably about as hot as it is mm-hmm. right now. Probably oh, a big lawn too. It was big. It was really big. So I began mowing the lawn and after two, three hours he came out and gave me an ice cold Coke, which I appreciated. And then I think I left the lawnmower in the middle of his yard and went to go get more gas because I ran out of gas. <sighs> after five hours or so, I went I finished and I went to the door and I knocked on his door. And I said, I'm finished mowing your lawn. And I just knew he was going to give me a $20 bill or something big because I didn't have time to mow anybody else's Mm -hmm. yard. I knew he would know that. And so he said, just a moment. And he came back to the door, and he gave me my money. And you know how much it was? Was it $2? It was $2. I was so disappointed. And I thought, why did he do that? I know he has a lot of money. He has a big house mm-hmm. and a big yard. I don't know why he would do that. Since then, as I've gotten older and, have, and been an adult, I look back at that and I don't think he was doing it to be stingy or to be mean. I think he was a smart man, mm-hmm. and I believe that he was teaching me a lesson. Yeah. The value of my time and the value of a dollar, and I never have forgotten that. Mm. and uh, I would go back and thank him. (laughs) Yeah. Where did you go to high school? I went to Tascosa Tascosa. High School. Mm -hmm. Loved it. Loved Tascosa. And what happened after you graduated? While I was there uh, at Tascosa, my mom said, you've got to take typing because every company needs a good secretary. Mm -hmm. I tried to choose that as my elective, but it was already full. Instead, they put me in Spanish class, and it was a two-year commitment. So thought, what in the world? What, what am I going to do with that? But it was really easy for me. And I it would really, really come to be an important part of my life later okay. on, later on. So just accidentally, just by fate, I ended up in Spanish class. And I graduated when I was a junior uh, because I just wanted to get out in the world and work. It just mm-hmm. seemed like school was, yeah. I just, I wanted to be done and yeah. I wanted to go work and I wanted to make money. and. You know, about the most that I could dream about, it was meeting Prince Charming and living in a little house with a white picket fence. That was my dream. That was the biggest dream that I could have. And so I got out of high school, and I went to work at Hertz Car Rental at the airport. Okay. It was my first full-time job. And that was a lot of fun. But after a couple of years, I moved to Dallas. and thought, oh, I'm going to go to the big city. Yeah. And I went to work as a, an admin assistant for an oil company for $5 an hour. And I was told I could make more money if I just knew how to type. Oh. <laughs> you said, I can't type, but I can't speak Spanish. <laughs> Will that help? No. Yes. Yeah, so I lived in Dallas for a, a couple of years. And I actually got into sales because I heard that's where the money was, was mm-hmm. in sales. So I uh, found a company that would give me an entry-level sales job. It was in the food industry. I called on chefs and restaurant owners and sold some meat and seafood products to them. And then my company lost two big customers. And so they downsized and it was just the owner and his wife and their daughter that worked there. So I didn't have a job anymore. And I called up a friend in Phoenix to go visit them and... When I was there, I thought, you know what? I heard they had some nice resorts here. For the heck of it, I'm just going to apply for a job. So I went to a resort, and I went to the personnel department and uh, filled out the paperwork. And she said, why don't you go meet with the manager? It's down around the corner and around this rock, and and, uh, the, the first door on the right. So I went into this restaurant, and it was kind of rugged. It was called the hole in the wall restaurant. Mm-hmm. And uh, they wore boots and jeans and a Western shirt. And so I asked, hi, are you the manager? And he said, where are you from, Georgia? I said, shoot, no, I'm a Texas girl Ugh, like that. And so the man that he was sitting with said, Hi her. She's cute. So they hired me, and I worked there for a while. I had I was I never waited tables before. People would leave $2 or $3. So I went back to my sales career after that, and that's when I ended up going to work for a, a temporary health company, calling on businesses. We had provided secretaries and then general laborers and that kind of thing. So it was during that process that one of my bosses encouraged me and heavily nudged me to join Toastmasters, hmm. which is a public speaking group, right. where I could lose my Texas accent. Interesting. So um, I, I did find, at the time, there was a trend to lose your accent. Sure, It was not popular to have an accent uh, nationwide, really. Mm-hmm. And so I found that when I had an accent that my customers were listening to the way I talked instead of what I was saying, so which was a problem. So I went and I joined this Toastmasters group and they killed me on my goings and my doings. Mm -hmm. But I did learn to speak more properly and stop with my Texas euphemisms that I had. And that actually helped a lot. Uh, for later, for the future, because I think that when people have an accent, sometimes they are looked at as being stupid. You could be judged,
0: yeah, by people who have preconceptions about people from a certain part of the country or whatever. Yes. And you don't want that to get in the way of...
1: No, 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 a business, a business. That actually did come in to be beneficial later. Uh, So I worked at the temporary help company for several years and then during that process a gentleman had called the office and he needed someone to take care of his 15-year-old son while he was traveling and he found this phone number for the office so i i, I listened to him and he said that he was looking for someone i don't care what they do in the daytime but i need, just needed to be here with my son after he gets out of football and i paid 2000 a month and i thought wow I can work all day, and then just I'll go. I'm single. I'll go take that job. So I said, I think I'd be interested in that. So I went to go visit with him, and he said, "Can you start Monday?" So I took care of. I it was extra money for me. I got myself a nice fancy car and started buying my clothes at Saks Fifth Avenue. It was it was great for a single girl. Yeah. And so later, I ended up hearing about a job. For a family that had just lost their mom, he, she uh, passed away suddenly at home uh, from an asthma attack, and she had three young kids. And I ended up applying to for a job to work there and full time. Mm-hmm. I went to go work with their family and take care of those kids, and it was a rough time for them. And I stayed with them until probably until uh, the, they graduated, until the youngest one graduated from high school, and they became like my family. Wow. I got married during that time. I was on a sales call uh, earlier when I was selling the temporary help, and I met the man that would be my future husband. He was wearing boots and jeans, and he worked in a seed and grain company. (laughs) So it reminded me of my Texas Texas roots. Yes. So um, we got married and had a child uh, shortly after that. So I took him with me to Uh, this family's house that I was taking care of the kids as an auntie for the kids. And during that time, it was in 1989, there was a little girl that was turning three years old and it was going to be her, her birthday. And everyone was bringing expensive gifts. And I thought to myself, what am I going to give her for her birthday? So in my family, it was really special if something was handmade, mm-hmm. you know, I had a grandmother that she crocheted, she did needlepoint, she made her own clothes and sewed. So it's the culture here really to the, to have things that are handmade. And that's why Hobby Lobby is Hobby Lobby, because the women here like to make things yeah. and homemade. So I thought, what am I going to make? I can't crochet or do any of those things I just mentioned so I went to a local hobby store. And at that time, they were just getting those hand paints in fabric paints. Yeah, And I thought, well, I bought five or six colors. And I thought, well, you know, a T-shirt is fabric. I'm going to paint her a T-shirt. So I went to Target and got three little boys T-shirts in a bag. And I think it was like $2.50 and bought six paint colors and went home and just started sketching some things. And I ended up painting two T-shirts for her and one for my little boy to wear to the party. So to my surprise, when I got there, they were hit. Everyone started asking, oh, where did you get those? I said, oh, I made them. Where did you get those? And then they started asking me if I could hand paint some T-shirts for them to give as gifts. So... At the party, I really started taking orders. Mm. I had no idea how much to charge, and I just did it for fun, really. Stayed busy doing that. And then one day I decided to take them to some local stores in Phoenix and Scottsdale, and they all bought from me. So I got a little busier. Can you describe
0: the T-shirts? Like, what, What did you do? A lot of us are thinking of hand-painted t-shirts you know that maybe somebody's done with an airbrush or some kids do as a project or they do at camp you know and i'm thinking of listeners who might think okay well why would people start placing orders for that (laughs) was there something different in the way that you approached it or how you designed it that you think got their attention beyond maybe the traditional here's a t-shirt i made at home
1: yes yes they were personalized. I actually drew these characters that looked like the little girl that was having the birthday. Okay. So for the first t-shirts that I did, I did, I know that the little girl, Kristen, had a best friend named Bonnie. And I knew they went to the beach. So I did two little girls, very simple characters, uh, sitting on a beach uh, at the beach with a sandcastle. So that was one of the shirts. And then I did two little girls... Holding hands and put Kristen and Bonnie best friends. So and then the the other T-shirt that my little boy wore looked like him. Hmm. It was one of his. He had these little bike shorts he wore that had black and white checkers down the side, and then some of those vans that were black and white yeah, checked.
0: I had some of those. Yeah.
1: <laughs> so uh, he had that in a little ball cap. So that's how I drew him. Okay. So they were cute and they were special because they were personalized. At basically. And so everybody would describe, yes, I need a little girl that has blonde curly hair. And then her best friend is a little girl that has brunette hair and it's straight. So I would paint those. It was fun. It was actually fun. And it was uh, fun to look and see when I was done uh, what they looked like and to see the pleasure in somebody else's face when I gave those. And then uh, one day when my little boy was at preschool, I met a woman that had a housekeeper that's from Guatemala that she didn't speak any English, but things were so busy and I didn't have time to, the house was a mess mm-hmm. <laughs> and I had t-shirts drying everywhere. I went and got some pizza boards and from like, I think little Caesars and, um, put the shirts on the pizza boards and they were I, that's where I painted them. And then I'd set them up all around the house drying Things were a little in disarray, and my husband used to come home and say, How much more time do you think you'll be doing this? It's just kind of making a mess in the Mm -hmm. house. So I thought, Oh, so we were talking about that, and she said, You know, I've got a girl from Guatemala, and she stays all day for $30. I said, Oh, we could do that. She "She doesn't speak any English. She comes to your house on Saturday morning, then that means she understood me. If she doesn't show up, then she just didn't understand. (laughs) So about 6 o'clock in the morning on that Saturday, we get a knock on the door. I thought, oh, who is that? And so she came in, and she was adorable. She was 19, and uh, she didn't speak any English. She was pregnant at the time, and she did a beautiful job on the house. And eventually, she became my first employee. Okay, She came to work for me, and the neat thing was every time we needed someone— She would just bring them, friends and some family members. So I never was without help. And those girls became like my sisters. They were, I I couldn't have done it without them. But at first, whenever I wanted to know all about her, I was trying to remember those back from my Spanish class. And you don't, if you don't speak it all the time, if you don't have an opportunity to speak it all the time. it
0: gets really rusty. Yeah.
1: So... I had an English to Spanish dictionary, and I started asking her, um, "¿Cuántos años está usted?" I asked her, "How old are you?" So I, at first, I spoke like a two-year-old, mm-hmm. and then I gradually some of those words came back to me. And then I told her, "Correct me, corrige-me, por favor." And so she corrected me, and then she did beautiful work. I didn't. She had. We began hand sewing embellishments on the T-shirts. To keep that handmade feel to mm-hmm. them, and she sewed beautifully, and and was I, I couldn't sew, but I was glad that she did, and and pretty soon, I sent some t-shirts to a showroom in Dallas, and they had a market coming up, mm-hmm. so he put the t-shirts in the window in the showroom, and. They wrote the first day $20,000 worth of orders the first day. Wow. And they they said, do you have a fax machine? I said, I don't know. I don't have a fax machine. I said, you've got to get a fax machine so we can send these orders over. The next day I got a phone call and somebody was asking for the exclusive to Japan. I was like, I don't even know. Do you say yes? Do you say no? (laughs) So the next week they sent another $10,000 worth of orders. And at the time, I sold them for $7.25. That's a lot of T-shirts yeah. that I was hand painting. So I had to find another way to get those designs okay. on the T-shirts. And they had to become more generic. Right. So you couldn't
0: customize everything could not with that, that
1: many orders. No. So I came up with, I had a ballerina. I had a fireman. I just kind of had to go back into the to what would be interesting for a child to mm-hmm. wear and, and what they could relate to. I came up with a Big Brother and a Big Sister t-shirt also, and we trademarked those words. So we became the only people that were able to make a Big Brother and a Big Sister t-shirt, I'm the Big Brother, I'm the Big Sister, and that took us a long way. We ended up being in, we were in showrooms in, in Dallas, Atlanta, San Francisco, New York, Chicago, and it just grew from there. And then we started selling even internationally. So it was it was amazing. It was just such a wild ride. And we were in a little rental house when I started that. So we were able to buy another house that was big enough to do the work in. To, to be have... a manufacturing yes. facility yeah. for you. <laughs> yes, that caused some trouble at one time. <laughs> but uh, um, we sold our first million dollars out of that house. Hmm. And then shortly after, of course, we had to get a warehouse. So what was the year
0: where those first sales you started getting in the showrooms where it really started to grow on that trajectory? What year was that?
1: That was, I believe, 1992. Okay. 1992. So I'd been dabbling for about three years. Now that we've got sort of the uh, how it started,
0: Fast forward a little bit and tell me what your company became, I guess, at its peak. Uh, What did it look like at that point?
1: We were the largest user of children's T-shirts in the country. Hmm. And that took us the Olympics that were held in Atlanta in 1996. Uh, Haynes came to us and asked us if we would be a licensee under them and make T-shirts for kids for the Olympic Games. And that was a pretty big deal because many, many stores wanted to carry Olympic products, sure. Olympic t-shirts and get in on the the craze at the time. So that was really exciting. I got an award from the University of Arizona, for Entrepreneur of the Year. And all of my girlfriends from Amarillo came out <laughs> to a big party that we had afterwards. And it's funny because during that time, they started talking about things they remember about me. In Amarillo, and um one of them said, "Oh, I just remember that Melanie's car would never start. Hmm. I had this nineteen sixty six mustang, and this was the seventies and I had to be at work at Hertz' car rental at six o'clock in the morning, and she didn't have to start until nine, but she had to go out it, when it was cold, my car never started, and she'd have to go out and help me jump my car to get it started, and it just drove her crazy." And then, so she remembered that, and another person said, well, you know what I remember about Melanie? She could cover up a pimple better than anybody I <laughs> That's nice. Oh, that's great. That's great to be remembered by. So anyway, they, they kept, that, was, that was a, a big accomplishment uh, for sure. But then in 2006, I was at a trade show in New York, And I had just experienced my good girlfriend from Amarillo. She had anorexia and she passed away. Hmm. And I worked really hard to get help for her and get her to a treatment center. And unfortunately, when she returned back here, she just continued to do what she was doing. She was trying to be, she was beautiful, but she was trying to have that model figure and be thin. So I was in New York and I just thought to myself, you know, what is it that I could do to change that, to change the thought, to change the mindset of little girls that they don't have to be thin to be Mm -hmm. beautiful, that beauty is inside. So I created this line of dolls and already I was making dolls that looked like the characters on a t-shirt. Okay. So it was a pretty easy transition. But I came up with these really modern, kind of um, funky dolls. They had wild, crazy hair made of yarn. And I had, they were all different. I had one blonde, curly haired doll and a blonde, straight haired doll and a brunette. And they all had different uh, personalities. And I had uh, an Asian doll and I had an African American doll. So I had a pretty good collection of mm-hmm. dolls that anyone would want that any little girl would want. And they were 18 inches, about the size of an American Girl doll, which you probably are not familiar with. I I am aware of that. Oh, okay. <laughs> and what were your dolls no. called? Adorable Girl Dolls. Okay. So it was a little take on my Adorable Originals mm-hmm. was the name of my company. And the reason why it was Adorable Originals is because when people first saw the T-shirts, they'd say, these are adorable. And I thought to myself when I was naming my company, well, they say they're adorable and they're original, so they'd yeah. be adorable originals. And then, so the, the adorable girl dolls became the next phase. I kept doing the t-shirts, mm-hmm. but then we it, then the adorable girl dolls took us into the toy industry. And there I was with the big boys. I was with. I, I suddenly became noticed from uh, by the the big toy companies. Sure, uh, we had Mattel and Hasbro and. Uh, all of those companies. And shortly, they be, I, even though I made a name for myself in the toy industry, I became Entrepreneur of the Year for the Women in Toys. I also got noticed by those big companies mm-hmm. and my product got noticed by the big companies and they began to just take little bites off of my product. So I had the Adorable Girl Dolls, and each doll wore a little choker necklace with a pearl on it and the motto was inside every girl is a pearl hmm. and so when the when the little girl was given a doll she could go online to an internet site that i had she could choose the personality that she had that she wanted for her doll if she's going to be kind caring friendly nice to others and then whatever she chose they could print out a Certificate with the doll's person, the name, and that she could name her doll, and then the doll's personality, and they were a hit. They were in every toy store in, in the country, and suddenly, Mattel, who used to make the American Girl doll, sure. she, who had always been about historical figures and historical characters, they had you know more old-fashioned type wardrobe. Suddenly, they developed a modern girl doll. She had some cute clothes and she got all the accessories, glasses, hair bows, all all of these things. And she had a motto, follow your inner star. So, and then Barbie, who'd always been about Ken and the trailer and convertibles Mm -hmm. and fashion, suddenly she got values. Her, Her motto became, be all you can be. And they made a, a police barbie and they made a soldier barbie and they made a secretary barbie and so they made all these different versions of career type things that a that a little girl could be so after a while it just wasn't fun anymore I was just saying
0: did you see that as validation of your ideas or did you see that as okay the big boys are trying to to push me out I mean did, how did you respond to that did it make you discouraged did it make you think okay I'm going to I've got good ideas, obviously,
1: mm-hmm. yes, it was really overwhelming. I would feel complimented, except for the fact that it, it was costly. You know, you know we they have market share, yeah, they have they get their doll in. You can't compete with I can't with compete. That. Why would someone want my doll if they already have Mattel's uh, American Girl doll, which already had the reputation, had mm-hmm. a great reputation. if you could own an American Girl doll, they were over a hundred dollars, it was a pretty big deal. so um I couldn't compete with those. Did they ever
0: come to you wanting to buy the line or buy you, your your talent, uh, and say, okay, here's somebody that's doing some good things. Let's just acquire this thing.
1: No, it was cheaper and easier for them to just, to just copy. copy. Hmm. That was just kind of a frustrating thing. There was a lot of great things that happened along the way. We had the dolls on QVC. They wanted the dolls for their Christmas program. They had a favorite things segment that they were doing and they wanted to put the Adorable Girl okay. dolls on there. So that was kind of fun. And I had all of our, like we all just kind of gathered that afternoon to watch to watch QVC when they were marketing the dolls. And then I came to work one day and the phone was ringing one morning and uh, it was New York calling. It was CNBC and they were asking me if, I would be willing to travel to New York the next day and be on a show called "The Big Idea" with Donnie Deutsch, mm-hmm. and I figured I could make that happen. So uh, I did get on a, a flight the next day and go out and be on his program. And th- there were a lot of people that he was interviewing at the time. Um, P. Diddy is a- okay. <laughs> I mean, he's had so many names. Yeah, I'm not I don't sure know. <laughs> He was coming. I think he was coming out with his Ciroc vodka. Hmm. So, uh, and then there was a a a couple that had some really, really great gourmet pretzels also that were on the same time I was. So it was it it was a lot of fun. It was a treat.
0: Tell me about the the last few years then, as you neared retirement, um, had spent so many years you know running this successful company. Like, how did you start to think about okay, I'm going to make this. This transition, you know, from from working from all of this production
1: uh, into the next stage. Well, there were a couple of significant things that happened. You know, one you wouldn't think this, but when nine eleven happened in two thousand and one, the country was pretty shut down. Nobody was traveling, but we sold to a lot of resorts and hotel gift shops, hmm. and no one was traveling. So everything just sat there. They didn't need any more merchandise. And that was, that took a while to come back from. That was in 2001. And then in 2008, when we saw the stock market crash. Yeah. That was, I believe, was maybe in October. So I don't remember exactly the month, but it was towards the end of the year. In January, when we went to go mail out our catalogs to over 6,000 stores Fifty percent of them had closed their doors. Wow, fifty. That this, we have a lot. We had a lot of individually owned uh, boutique stores, and they just didn't have the staying power. So whew, that took a bite. That took a, a significant bite out of our business. And I had the adorable girl dolls. So I thought, you know what, we're going to do. We're going to go bigger. We're going to start selling to bigger stores. We'll sell to Toys R Us. And uh, and JCPenney's will go big, well, because all the little guys were dropping like sure. flies. And whew, bigger was not better. <laughs> we would sell. Let's just say we had we'd sell fifty thousand dollars worth of merchandise to Toys R Us, and they gave us a check for five. But that was just part of the tough times, and they ended up closing. They did, yeah. So everyone was affected, even the big stores. So then we see Amazon coming uh, on scene and getting more momentum, which also was hurting the brick and mortar stores. Mm -hmm. So they just suffered greatly. And we see the decline of the malls uh, in America. A lot of them are being repurposed. They make, they're making hospitals and medical facilities out of them, uh, apartments, Mm -hmm. all those things. So we're really even still seeing that fallout, I believe. So each year, we just couldn't. They just couldn't get back up again. Yeah. I think the as far as the end of the stores that we had built our business on, we they were just going away. So it became more uh, encouraging, more enticing, just to go ahead and try to sell our merchandise, try to see if we could sell the company and sell the properties uh, that we had. We had a, a large warehouse. Uh, it was about an acre worth of, on about an acre's worth of land there in Phoenix. So, um, we started making plans to do that. It took a little while yeah. to do it. And we finally uh, sold those just, uh, just a couple years, right before we got okay. here. It just right before COVID. Yeah. And then COVID, it, the timing was right because then we had COVID that also took many of the stores out because they couldn't be open. So that was another big, big hit. Mm.
0: I just want to to kind of see what it was like for you. You went from running this business, living in Phoenix to selling all of those pieces and retiring and moving to Amarillo, you know, all within a you know, a couple of years. That's that's a lot of transition all at once. And I wonder if you could kind of talk to me about that. All those changes in your life that happened at the time
1: that you were moving to Amarillo. Well, yes, it was a lot of transition. And we didn't plan on moving back to Amarillo. It just happened that we found right, this little yeah. house. And so we're glad that we did. And we found that we were supposed to be here. And shortly after coming here, I was working on a a second house that we bought. And we were remodeling. And it was so Hot, it was actually last year, it was very really over a hundred degrees, and it seemed like the air conditioning wasn't working well and I thought oh, I'm just so hot and I stayed there several hours working and I went home that night and just took a shower and thought, you know I'm going to have a glass of wine, I had a glass of wine and I went to bed and about three o'clock in the morning, I had a seizure hmm. I just had this big seizure and I rolled up out of bed and knocked over the lamp and my husband thought I was dying. (laughs) And he went to go call 911 and I went to the hospital and they did an MRI. And I found out that I had a large tumor, brain Mm -hmm. tumor, and it was devastating. The doctor that they sent to give me the information, I, I just felt like there was someone standing behind me that he was talking to, not talking to me. And he said, we don't have anyone here that can treat you. And there's nobody here that can, you, you need an operation. You need to get this removed. And there's nobody here in Amarillo that can do it. I said, well, what do I do? He said, well, I would suggest that you go back to Phoenix because they have a, a, one of the best neuro neurological centers there. And so I was. There something
0: about the tumor that made it difficult for the doctors here to treat. I mean, was it no, was it a I standard? Just, no, it was.
1: Lo- it was located. It was about an or- the size of an orange. It was large. Wow. He said, um, "You have an impressive brain tumor," and I did not know that that was a medical term. Okay, <laughs> that's not where you want. That you don't want to be impressive in that in that area. But he said, "You have an impressive brain tumor. It's large." in your frontal lobe area, and it's pressing on the rest of my brain, so it has to come out uh, right away. But he said, I don't do that. I don't do that. And so they just sent me here to give you the, the information. And I said, well, what, what, you know, what do I do? And he really wasn't able to give me too much information. Mm-hmm. So I did travel to Phoenix, and I had the brain tumor removed. It was a 10-hour surgery. Wow. and I, stayed, I had to stay in Phoenix for a couple of months after that, and I didn't know what life would look like after that. Was it benign? It was okay. benign. And the way it was explained to me is that they they can be made of all different types of textures, and they wouldn't know what it was made of until they got in there. Yeah. But sometimes they're like a rock, which is hard to work with. Sometimes they're like rubber, also very hard to work with. And sometimes they are made of something softer. And this was—I was told that when he got in there, he found very favorable conditions. Okay. So they were able to get all of it out. It was uh, probably one of the most, probably one of the hardest things in my life I've been through. Even though I've You've been through had a lot ups of ups and
0: downs. <laughs> Did what was what was the recovery like? I know this, uh, and and you know this too. You know, my dad had. brain tumor his was cancerous and had multiple surgeries and like the one of the things that surprised us was just the weird things that happened post-surgery when you get in there get in your brain and do stuff like it has interesting emotional Mm -hmm. impacts physical impacts um memory all those kinds of things and i wonder like what what that recovery was like for you as you dealt with the fallout from it
1: Well, uh, because it was located in my frontal lobe area, that controls our emotions and our decision-making process. So I cried a lot. I cried a lot. I had to be on high doses of steroids for the swelling. Mm -hmm. And those are just absolutely horrible. I was hungry. (laughs) It seemed like I was hungry all the time. So um, I think I gained about 25 or 30 pounds just having to be on those. I had a big black eye, and I had stitches that were all the way from the top of my head to my ear. Mm-hmm. And if I went out so, somewhere, I could see that people thought my husband did that to me. Yeah. <laughs> I felt really bad for him. But um, it was it was very, very hard. I didn't tell hardly anybody that I had a brain tumor. And there's many people that don't know. Wow. And because— You just disappeared for I disappeared. a couple months to Phoenix. I disappeared. But I told a select group of people that I knew would pray for me. There are sometimes people say, oh, yeah, we'll pray for you. But I knew that these yeah. people would. And they were on my short list. And my husband created a list of people that he was going to be reporting to every day on my pro- on my progress. But it was very rough. It was the strangest thing to, to go through to have something that affected your health like that. Yeah. And it, it's been a little rough. I have some memory issues. Okay. I have, unfortunately, I, when the the last thing the surgeon said to me before I left Phoenix was no stress, no stress, Melanie. So, which is you close said, to impossible. Do you know what I've been doing for all of my life? <laughs> so he said that. And then I had a, I had a particularly stressful day in April and there wasn't anything I hadn't handled before. I didn't feel like it was affecting me that much. But that night when I went to bed, about midnight, I had another seizure. Yes, just a few months ago. And so after all these months of a successful surgery, and I didn't have to take any medication, I suddenly now have to take anti-seizure medication. And um, it is just disheartening for me to think about. And some people tell me that people get these things again. <laughs> so I'm trying to do everything different than than what I did before. I started working out. I stopped doing fake sugar. <laughs> I don't know. They said they don't the, know what causes them.
0: Hmm. I'm glad that, that you're on the upswing from it. Um, I, I'd like to close up this section just by tying back your upbringing in Amarillo to your very successful career the hard work that was so much a part of the first part of your story like do do you look back and you think okay i moved away from amarello but all of the things that kind of seeped into you back then continued to be a part of of how you mm-hmm. worked how you thought how you created how you ran a company you know for so
1: many years is that accurate that makes absolutely perfect sense to me that is exactly the way it worked you, you know, lost
0: the accent but you didn't lose the uh, the work
1: ethic, right <laughs> well, well you know what thank you for bringing that up you know after going through a season where people where it wasn't popular to have a an accent i found in some of my other areas of life i began to um, speak at women's retreats and uh, gatherings for women and I found that I needed to own my Texas okay. roots, and so I found that whenever I came up with my Texas euphemisms, they loved it. That it was very it became
0: fashionable. Big,
1: yeah. yeah, yes, and it was very unthreatening. It's not threatening hmm. when okay. somebody just talks down home like that. So I found myself just—I I do talk like that, where I'll just get my Texas Twain going, and especially when I'm trying to emphasize something. And you know, and I love it. I love it. So, but it was. Uh, All of those things, you know, something that I didn't say earlier that was one of those aha moments is I was, had been painting, the hand painting the shirts and I got a woman that could work with those hand paints and I was driving down the freeway in Phoenix with a big load of t-shirts in the back of my trunk and it occurred to me, oh my goodness, this is going to be a business. This going to be a business. I, I, I can't run a business. I haven't been to college. I, I, I don't know. There's, surely I can't run a business. I, I'm not smart enough to run a business. And I heard God's voice say to me audibly, Melanie, yes, you can. Everything that you've been through in your life has prepared you for this. It's going to be okay. And you're going to have a business and you can do this. I just... I sobbed all the way back down the freeway, and I'm surprised I didn't have an accident. I couldn't hardly see out the window. But it was that was one of those aha moments where all of those things that I'd been through and the things that had happened to me all my life had prepared me to have a business and all the things that I would be going through in the future, including a brain tumor, I guess. <laughs> This episode
0: is supported by Starlight Canyon Bed & Breakfast, a garden oasis under a canopy of elm trees upstream from Paladuro Canyon State Park. It's just a few miles south of the loop. For one thing, this is an amazing venue for weddings. But it also offers romantic, relaxing getaways in private cabins, each with a hot tub and a homemade breakfast delivered on the weekends. Every stay at this locally-owned boutique hotel property can include add-on packages like candlelight dinners, You know, Starlight Canyon is one of my favorite destinations in the Panhandle. I just talked to the owner, Nate Green, a few weeks ago on the podcast. And at Starlight, you can get away without going away. To learn more, visit StarlightCanyon.com. That's Starlight Canyon Bed and Breakfast at StarlightCanyon.com. This week's episode is also supported by Wick Realty. I recorded this interview with Melanie here in my home studio at the house that... I was able to buy because of Wick Realty. My family and I love our house, and we love our neighborhood, and we're here because Wick helped us sell our previous home and buy this one a few years ago. Wick Realty is invested in seeing Amarillo flourish economically and socially for all groups of people. So if you're buying or selling, if you're building, if you're looking for investment property, talk to Katie Wick or one of her outstanding agents. That's wickrealty.com, W-I-E-C-K. Came back with Melanie Korpstein. Melanie, this is part of the show I call Eight Straight. Eight Straight is sponsored every week by Panhandle Plains Historical Museum in Canyon. It's the largest history museum in Texas, and I chose this for you. Its collection includes wedding dresses <laughs> from more than a century of local women's fashion.
1: Nice. Um,
0: you can see that. Uh, some of it's hidden in the archives, but they bring it out from time to time, and you can learn more at panhandleplains.org. Okay, first question, I know that you're Relatively new, having returned here, but you do have a lot of Amarillo history. When you think of Amarillo 10 years from now, what do you hope for?
1: Well, I know that Amarillo is growing, growing uh, leaps and bounds. And I hope that in its continued growth that it would still have those wide open spaces. It was always said years ago that Amarillo and Canyon would end up just joining each smashed other. together, yeah. <laughs> yes. I haven't seen that yet. It's, but It's, it's getting, getting closer, <laughs> the... The housing developments don't really stop. That's true. So I hope we keep the wide open spaces because it's like, you know, very few, very few places have this. And also, as people move here, I hope that they would embrace the hospitality that Amarillo is known for, that good Texas hospitality, and join in and Mm -hmm. join in in that because it's probably different from where they've come from. I think that's true. So. Okay. uh, Other than wind, what does this area have too much of? I've always been told that feedlots are the smell of money. That's true. And though we don't ever want to get rid of those, it it does kind of, the smell kind of gets in the way of my taste of coffee in the morning on the patio. Some mornings.
0: Depends on the direction the wind is blowing. (laughs)
1: Uh,
0: Yeah, nobody will dispute that.
1: Uh, But we need those. We need those. those. Yeah,
0: they they support uh, everything else we're able to do. What does this area not have enough of?
1: Brain surgeons. Yeah. Brain surgeons and, and, and medical personnel. I think we are sh- short of doctors. Mm-hmm. So it takes a while to get in to see a doctor and establish. And now they, once you request to go see a doctor, they have to approve you and as their patient. And that's one of the things that
0: we've had these conversations before. Amarillo is a hub for all of the panhandle. And so we've got everybody coming here for medical care. Uh, and, and so the demand is really high, even for some of those specialties, like you might have experienced. And so, yeah, that is a place that we need to continue to make progress, continue to grow. Because you, you don't want any family member to have to, you know, move to Phoenix no. to get treatment for something. No,
1: no, not at all. What's your favorite local coffee shop? Palace coffee. Okay. I like it. I love those couches they have there. They're nice and comfy. Yeah. If you can snag one. Yeah. They're popular. They're popular. Kind of hard to to get during a busy time. Okay. What's your favorite street in Amarillo? Well, probably a street that I was never, ever able to live on. It's Oldham Circle. Mm Mm-hmm. So it's just beautiful. It is. And they have such beautiful homes there. That's uh, maybe if you were out trying
0: to make money mowing. (laughs) You know, these days, that's where you would take the mower, <laughs> yeah. some of those yards.
1: <laughs> yes, yes. Um, what's your favorite local restaurant? The first thing I want to say is a, a new upscale restaurant that I just tried. But Instead, I was reminded this week that it has to be Doug's Barbecue. Okay. It's just an Amarillo staple that's been here for a long, long time. And they have probably some of the best potato salad in town. Yeah, that's true. It's good, and it's been the same food for all that time. Same building? And dang, yes. And I just feel kind of bad for them. I'm glad they're still standing because we've got these big, big, big restaurants that have come in yeah. that are barbecue. And one thing I couldn't get in Phoenix was good barbecue and a chicken fried steak. Okay. That makes sense to me. <laughs> um, what's the most underrated thing about Amarillo? The misconception that people that have an accent are not intelligent. Hmm. And we have a lot of bright people here, and we have a lot of smart people here. But I think sometimes in other parts of the country, they look at this part of the country and just think people are a bunch of country bumpkins. And, uh, you know, one of the things I think of is uh, several years ago, whenever Oprah Winfrey said on her her show that beef has mad cow disease and she's not going to eat it, and then it caused a big problem in the beef industry. There was a huge downturn in the amount of beef that was being sold. And so when the cattlemen's association here wanted to sue her, she just thought it was the stupidest, most ridiculous thing ever. She didn't take them seriously. When she met with Dr. Phil, who was out of Dallas, he said, these people are serious and you better get serious. Or you're gonna you're gonna lose this thing. And these these cattle these cattlemen and stuff, they're sharp They weren't afraid of Oprah. They were not I, I love I, ultimately, it.
0: Ultimately, uh, you know, they didn't get the outcome they wanted, but, like, uh, I, I think she left with a a respect for this area mm-hmm. that maybe she didn't bring into it. Oh, so I would agree. I would agree. Okay, last question, now that we're talking about beef. When was the last time you visited the Big Texan?
1: <laughs> well, it's been a minute. The last time I visited the Big Texan was probably, probably, honestly, 20 years ago okay. when we, we bought it a stuffed armadillo for our Texas room in Phoenix. Okay. And I think we named it Willie. And uh, he didn't eat much. But, uh, you know, every room, to me, every room needs a little point of interest, a surprise. Yeah. So Willie was our surprise. (laughs) Okay. So you haven't been then since you come back. You know what? When someone comes to town to to visit, or my boys, we always say, we're going to leave for the airport early so we can go to the big Texan. But it just has not worked out. Well, and you got to be
0: prepared because it's busy every time of day. You know, middle of the afternoon on a Monday. It'll oh, be, wow. It'll be busy. So oh,
1: that's good to know. Plan ahead oh. if, if you're
0: going to try to make that for the airport. <laughs> okay, okay, Melanie, that concludes the eight straight questions. I like to close by asking my guests to endorse something. So what's one thing you would like locals to know about or to experience?
1: Well, I have started a new venture. Have you? And it's home staging. That little home that we bought when we moved here that we thought about making an Airbnb uh, for, i we remodeled and I decorated it. And someone bought it a few weeks ago and they wanted everything in it. Hmm. She said, I want everything, including the toilet paper. And I thought that was a joke, but the realtor said, no, really. She said, including the toilet paper. And I started realizing that the last three homes that we've sold have sold with everything in them. They wanted all the decor And during the time we were showing this house, I had several realtors ask me if I would please come and stage the homes that they had for sale or help the home seller give a proper presentation. So I started Hidden Gems. Okay. And now I have Hidden Gems. The website is hiddengems.design.
0: Okay, so and it's a, it is uh, in full swing. Going. Yeah, so you're not necessarily retired anymore.
1: <laughs> this is part of my retirement. Yeah. Here we go again. Yeah. Okay. Well, <laughs> so I think we. I I would say I'm making Emerald beautiful one home at a time. All right.
0: Well, I'm sure uh, there's a lot of people that appreciate that, and mm-hmm. I uh, I appreciate you letting me know. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. Oh, thank you for having me. It's a lot of fun. And that concludes the episode. I want to say thanks again to Melanie for the interview. As she mentioned, you can find her new home staging service at hiddengems.design. Thanks also to episode sponsors, U.S. Cleaners, Starlight Canyon Bed and Breakfast, Wick Realty, and Panhandle Plains Historical Museum for supporting the podcast. And thanks to Angelina Marie for editing this episode. Thank you for listening. Hey Amarillo exists on a weekly basis because of listeners like you and the local people who support it financially, through patreon.com slash Amarillo. Hey Amarillo. executive producers include Patrick Burns, Jason Burr, Katie Linger, Wes Reeves, Cindy Graham, Josh Wood, Corey Burns, and Barbara and Jim Witten. And actually, Jim Witten introduced me to Melanie Corpsey. That's how I found out about her and her story. So thanks, Jim. This has been episode 319. My name is Jason Boyette, and I'll see you next week.